Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. He is, he, he is a graduate of Yale University. He, is a direct, he was the director for 29 years of the pediatric neurosurgery, John Hopkins Children's Center. He has been awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian honor that can be given. He was named by CNN and Time Magazine as the nation's one of the nation's 24 most physicians and scientists. He was the first to successfully, through his surgery techniques, separate Siamese twins from the back of the head. I love this title. He was selected by the Library of Congress as one of 89 living legends. His wife Candy is with him today, and she's an amazing woman and leader. She has three degrees from Yale University, master's degree in administration. She runs the Carson Scholars Fund, which has, listened to this, since given scholarships to 7,500 plus students to go to college. He has authored eight books, two of them, number one New York Times bestsellers. He has a brand new book that he is going to be talking about today. I think someone has a copy of that book. And I want to encourage you because they have... 1,000 of these books that he pre-signed so that you don't even have to stand in line. It's already pre-signed. You know, this is, after you read it, you could sell it on eBay and make a lot of money. I mean, this is a business opportunity you can't turn down here this morning. You have a signed copy. There's only 1,000 of them, and when they're gone, they're gone. And I know how you people are. You buy material. And then if you would like, he also has, hand me that book. He also has, uh, he also will be signing personally books after this service and after the 11 o'clock service, a more perfect union. It's already headed to the top of the charts as a New York Times bestseller. We're absolutely honored and, and privileged to have Dr. Ben Carson. Would you give him a warm free chapel welcome? Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Candy and I are absolutely delighted to be here in this wonderful place. You know, I've, I've been blessed so much by <clears throat> the ambiance and by the music. Uh, gosh, I could go home now and, and be blessed for the day. It's absolutely wonderful. I just want to start with a word of prayer. Kind Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come into your house of worship. And we ask that your spirit would be here and let the words that are spoken not be mine, but yours. And let our hearts be receptive. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, you know, I, I particularly love that, uh, that last song, America the Beautiful, because, you know, this is such a wonderful place, and I am so glad that I was born here. I've had a chance to visit 57 countries, 
And I always say, there's no place like home. And, uh, you know, people are always trying to denigrate our country. Uh, but have you noticed that there's a lot of people trying to get in here and not too many people trying to get out? So. <laughs> and, and our country has a wonderful foundation. The men who put together our Constitution had Judeo-Christian backgrounds. And, you know, a lot of the people who try to rewrite our history, they say, uh, they weren't really, you know, Christian-type people. They were deist. They just believed that maybe there was a God, maybe somewhere, but he didn't have much to do with what was going on. But, you know, I don't believe that's true at all because I've had a chance to read a lot of their writings, and that just not make a lot of sense. And, you know, bef at, the, at the 1787 Constitutional Convention, when the whole thing was about to fall apart, the elder statesman got up, Benjamin Franklin, in front of the whole assembly. He was 81 years old. And he said, gentlemen, during the revolution, every other phrase out of your mouth was, God save us. And now you don't want to talk to God. He said, let us get down on our knees and let us pray to God for wisdom. And that whole assembly knelt down, and they prayed. And when they got up, they put together a 16-and-a-third-page document known as the Constitution of the United States of America, which has stood the test of time and been one of the most revered documents of any civilization in the history of the world. And it was because God was involved in helping to put this country together. And, you know... For a very long time, we honored that. In fact, you know, it was Franklin's prayer that was the basis of the fact that every congressional session now is started with prayer. But you think about our country, our founding document, the Declaration of Independence, talks about certain unalienable rights given to us by our creator, a.k.a. God. <laughs> the, the Pledge of Allegiance to our flag says we are one nation under God. Many courtrooms on the land, on the wall it says, in God we trust every coin in our pocket, every bill in our wallet says, in God we trust. So if it's in our founding documents, it's in our pledges, in our courts, and it's on our money, but we're not supposed to talk about it. What in the world is that? In medicine, it's called schizophrenia. <laughs> and I, for one, am simply not willing to kick God to the curb. Because, you know, as we... As we are doing that as a nation, what is happening to us? Look at the direction that we're going in. You're, you're hard-pressed to find anybody who thinks that this is the right direction. But this is st still a great place, 
a great land of opportunity. You know, I remember as a youngster growing up in dire poverty. And I got to tell you, I did not like poverty. You know, some people, they don't mind it. They're as happy as a pig in slop. But I, you know, I, it bothered me, you know. For some people, you know, they don't like rats and roaches and snakes. And, but poverty was, in fact, I was certain that I was born into the wrong family. But I remember, I remember as a nine-year-old, sitting on the ghetto stairs. We had moved from Detroit to Boston after my parents' divorce. And I was sitting on the ghetto stairs, looking through the building across the street, out of which all the windows had been broken, and there was a sunbeam shining through it. And it made me think about my future. I remember thinking that I would probably never live to be more than 25 years of age, because that's what I saw around me. I saw bullet holes and people lying on the street waiting to die. I saw both of my older cousins who we adored killed. It was sort of a way of life. And it was the sirens and the gangs and the murders. But the thing that impressed me the most were the roaches. <laughs> you know, in the more upscale areas, they call them water bugs, but we knew what they were. I mean. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, not only would they crawl on your table, they would crawl into your cereal box. So if you were eating Raisin Bran, you had to know what those brown things were. <laughs> I shouldn't say that since I spent 18 years on the Kellogg board. But, <laughs> and then the rats, the first time I saw one, I thought it was a dog. I mean, these things could... They could jump like five feet in the air. But, uh, you know, my mother was out working extremely hard while we were there enjoying that uh, horrible situation. But, uh, you know, her goal was actually to, to leave that poverty-stricken ghetto in Boston and somehow get back to Detroit. And after a couple of years, we were able to get back to Detroit still in a horrible situation, but at least she was independent at that point. And I was in the fifth grade, and I was this worst student that you've ever seen. I thought I was really, really stupid. Everybody else agreed. And uh, I remember once we were having a, an argument on the school playground about who was the dumbest kid in the school. And it wasn't a big argument, because they all agreed it was me, but then, Someone tried to extend the argument to who was the dumbest person in the world. And I said, wait a minute. I said, there are billions of people in the world. And they said, yep, and you're the dumbest one. So, <laughs> so we, ha we had a rather vigorous argument. But the sad part was that afternoon, we had a math quiz. Now, I did not get along with math. I had a basic philosophical difference with my math teacher who thought you should know your timetables. And I figured they were printed on the back of the notebook so you could consult them anytime you wanted. <laughs> so that didn't work so well. And uh, you had to pass your paper to the person behind you. They would correct it, give it back to you. And you would have to report your score out loud as the teacher called your name. Great if you got 100 or 95. 
not so great if, as I did, you got a zero and just had an argument about who was the dumbest person in the world. And I knew they were going to laugh hysterically when I said zero, so I, I started scheming. I said, I know what I'll do. When a teacher calls my name, I'll mumble. And the teacher will think I said one thing, and the girl behind me will think I said something else. So when she called my name, I said, nah. <laughs> and she said, nine. Benjamin, you got nine, right? It's wonderful. I knew you could do it if you just applied yourself. <laughs> Class, this is wonderful. Benjamin has got nine, right? It had 30 questions, but she was just so excited. <laughs> and the girl behind me just couldn't take it anymore. And she stood up and said, he said, none. Well, the kids were rolling in the aisles, and I tell you, if I could have disappeared into thin air, never to be heard from again in the history of the world, I would gladly have done so, but I couldn't. So I just sit there and act like it didn't bother me, but it did. It bothered me a lot. Not enough to make me study, but it bothered me a lot. You know? <laughs> but, you know, the kind of kid that I was reminds me of so many people that I encounter today. Kids, but worse than that, adults, who don't know a lot, who are ill-informed, and it's problematic. One of the things that impressed Alexis de Tocqueville when he came to America to study this nation in 1831, because the Europeans were fascinated by how this fledgling nation barely 50 years old, could already compete with virtually all the powers of Europe. How was that happening? And the Tuckville was very impressed with our educational system. Anybody finishing the second grade was completely literate. I mean, he could find a mountain man and the guy could read the newspaper, could tell him how our government worked. And nowadays, if you have seen some of those man on the street interviews, they go out and ask people basic questions. They'll say like, what's the significance of Labor Day? And they'll say, isn't that to celebrate women having babies? I mean, they have <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. You know, that's, that's how far afield we've gone. And why is that problematic? Because the founders of our nation said that our freedoms and our way of life is dependent upon a well-informed and educated populace. And they said, if we ever become anything other than that, the nature of the country will change. Why? Because the populace would then be easily manipulated. People who are not well informed can be very easily manipulated. And all it takes is dishonest politicians and a complicit media and off you go. And that, I believe, is what is happening right now. And that's the reason that Candy and I wrote a more perfect union. Because the majority of people know that we have a constitution, but not many people know what's in it. And not many people know the background of it. And some people say, but you're not a constitutional scholar. How can you write a book on a constitution?
Well, the Constitution was written at an eighth grade level. I believe a neurosurgeon has a little more than an eighth grade education. But you know, there are people who are always trying to make you think that they are the fountain of wisdom and knowledge and that you couldn't possibly understand it. And that's one of the problems that we've arrived at today. This country is supposed to be of, for, and by the people. The government... The government is there to facilitate life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What has happened is the government has grown and insinuated itself into every part of our lives. And now it's about them and they dictate to the people. And that's problematic. You know, that's one of the reasons, for instance, that I was so vehemently opposed to the so-called Affordable Care Act because instead of it being of form by the people, the government came along and said, this is what we're doing. We don't care what you people think. We're shoving it down your throat, and if you don't like it, too bad. You know, that is not America. But the worst part is most people didn't even realize what that meant. That meant that we were beginning a fundamental change in America, where instead of the people being at the pinnacle, the government was now at the pinnacle, dictating to the people. And most of the people didn't even realize the change that was occurring. That's why I was so vehemently opposed to it. That's why I continue to be opposed to it. Because if we accept the government taking control of the most important thing we have, our health and our health care, it is not long before they take control of every aspect of our lives. And we must change that. We also, as the people, are responsible for what happens in this country. And it means we must be very cognizant of who represents us. Our system was set up with checks and balances. And three co-equal branches of the government. But they have to be co-equal in order for it to work properly. And in recent years, the legislative branch has become more like the peanut gallery, watching the executive branch and the judicial branch do whatever they want to do. And that's our responsibility. And we need to make sure that we send people to Congress who have backbone, who are willing to stand up and fight. It will make all the difference in the world, but it means that, that we have to be willing to stand up, and that is a vital part of what made America. We had people always who were brave, not people who were afraid that someone was going to call them a name or give them an IRS audit 
or mess with their job or their family's job. There were people who were willing to give up everything they had, including their lives, so that we could enjoy the freedoms that we have today. And we must always put that into perspective. You know, a lot of people have, have said to me, you know, why are you willing to get into this fray when you had such a wonderful career and reputation and you, you know, you were blessed financially and you could just sit back and relax. Well, I'll tell you why. It's because America is worth saving. We need to save it. And if that means getting into a war with the PC police, I'm ready to fight that war. And I hope you will join me in that war. But you know, fortunately, you know, for me, you know, I was not doing that well in school, but I had a mother who believed in me. And uh, what a difference that made. And she would always say, Benjamin, you're much too smart to be bringing home grades like this. I brought them home anyway, but she was always saying that. <laughs> yeah. And she instituted the programs after praying to God for wisdom. What could she do to get her young sons to understand the importance of intellectual development? And you know, that's the wonderful thing about God. You don't have to have a PhD to talk to him. You just have to have faith. That's all you need is faith. And she had the faith, and he gave her the wisdom, at least in her opinion. My brother and I didn't think it was all that wise. <laughs> I mean, turning off the TV, what kind of wisdom is that? As far as we were concerned, it was child abuse. And then to, to make it worse, we had to read two books apiece from the Detroit Public Library every week and submit to her written book reports, which she couldn't read, but we didn't know that. And you know, she would put check marks and highlights and underlines and we would think she was reading them but she wasn't but 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 what what an important change it created in me because as, as i started reading about people particularly people of great accomplishment it dawned on me that the person who has the most to do with what happens to you in life is you it's not somebody else. It's not the environment. And that you can make the right decisions and that you can decide what energy to put behind it. And once that happened, I stopped listening to all the negative people around me and the people who were telling me what you can't do. And I started concentrating on what you can do because we are made in the image of God and God did not make us to be failures. And the Lord began to orchestrate all kinds of wonderful things in my life. And, you know, college at Yale, University of Michigan for medical school, Johns Hopkins training. And when I got to my last year as chief resident, we had the grand opening of the Neuroscience Center at Johns Hopkins. And since Hopkins is sort of like the Martin birthplace for neurosurgery, all the big wigs from around the world were there. And uh, one of the 
big wigs from Australia took a liking to me and said, you should come to Australia to be our senior registrar at a major teaching hospital. And I was thinking, Australia, are you kidding me? I said, you drill a hole from Baltimore and you come out in Australia. I don't want to come. Plus, I heard that they had a whites-only policy, so I just kind of poo-pooed the idea. <laughs> I wasn't too interested. And, um, but it seemed like every time I turned around, there was somebody saying, good eye, Mike. How you going? And uh, every time we turned the TV on, there was a special one about Australia. And I said to Candy, I think the Lord wants us to go to Australia. So... She, you know, we, she started investigating, and we found out, in fact, they did have a whites-only policy, but it was officially abolished in 1968, and that was 1983. So we sold all of our earthly belongings, and off we went to Australia. And all our friends were saying, you'll be back. <laughs> but little did they know, we couldn't come back because we didn't have any more money. So we had to stay. <laughs> but you know, the biggest problem I had in Australia keeping up with all the dinner invitations. They love Americans in Australia. Second biggest problem, every time I sat down and started writing in a chart, invariably someone would come up and say, do you mind if I feel your hair? <laughs> <laughs> I would say, you can feel it, but it's gonna cost you 10 bucks. But, <laughs> but see, I always would get back at them because I would say, I can't remember any of your names because you all look alike. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it, turned out, it turned out to be a tremendous opportunity because, you see, the, there were only four neurosurgical consultants in all of Western Australia. And once they learned that I knew how to operate, they left me in charge largely of the major teaching hospital, and they went out to the private hospitals. And I was doing three or four major craniotomies every day. Right after I had finished my residency, if I had stayed on at Hopkins, I would have gotten what everybody else didn't want to do as the low mind on the totem pole. So enormous amount of experience. So when I came back to Hopkins a year later, and the director, a position for director of pediatric neurosurgery opened, I was there. And they said, Carson's very young, and uh, he doesn't have a lot of gray hair and a big reputation but he knows how to do everything. So there I was, chief of pediatric neurosurgery at age 33 at Johns Hopkins. And clearly the Lord had orchestrated that. And, but I must admit that I, you know, I thought it was pretty hot stuff. And uh, there was a little boy from Georgia he was a prodigy. At age two, he was already saying Bible verses. By age four, however, he was stumbling. He couldn't walk anymore. He had double vision. He couldn't handle his secretions. And he was diagnosed with a malignant brainstem tumor, an inoperable condition. And he saw multiple specialists. Everybody said the same thing. And I first encountered him at Hopkins being rolled onto the ward with, on a stretcher, barely moving, barely breathing foam coming out of his mouth, eyes looking in different directions. I was thinking, what am I supposed to do? And I looked at the skin, and there was this ugly-looking brainstem tumor. And the parents said, Doctor, we were directed here by the Lord because we would find a Christian neurosurgeon who could heal our son. And I said, well, there's nothing that I or anybody can do about this. This is an inoperable brainstem tumor. And they said, but doctor, the Lord 
is going to heal our son. He's going to use you to do it. And I said, you know, that's nice. But uh, I said, I'll tell you what. You came all the way up here. MRIs were brand new. I said, maybe the MRI will show us something that the CT scan didn't show us. So we got an MRI. I had all the neuroradiologists look at it. Same conclusion, malignant brainstem tumor. I went and told them. And they said, but doctor, the Lord is going to heal our son. I said, look, one in a thousand times we make a mistake on the scans. And maybe it could be like a big reactive fungal ball or something. So I'll biopsy it. So I took him to the operating room, opened him up, went down there. There was a big, ugly, grayish red tumor. I took a specimen, sent it for frozen section. It came back, high-grade glioma, a very malignant tumor. I took out as much as I dared, went back and talked to them, said, I'm sorry, but, you know, it looks like what we thought. And, uh, you know, only God knows the purpose of everyone's life, and maybe he served his purpose, and we'll understand it better by and by. You know all the things we always tell people. And fully expecting that he would deteriorate and die. And they said, Doctor, thank you. The Lord is going to heal our son. And as I walked away, I just couldn't imagine how anybody could have that much faith. Fully expecting him to deteriorate and die, but over the next few days, he got better. His eyes started looking in the same direction. He started handling his secretions. I said, what's going on? I said, let's get another scan. And we did, and there was a little ribbon of tissue way up in the corner by the tumor. And I said, is it possible that this tumor is outside of the brainstem and it just took up all the space and crushed it and displaced it and we didn't see it? And I said, maybe we should go back in. And they said, by all means. And I went back in there, and under the microscope, the nature of the tumor had changed, and I peeled it away layer by layer. And when I got to the last layer, there was a glistening white brainstem intact, but smashed and in place. Long story short, that boy walked out of the hospital, and today is a minister. <laughs> And, you know, that was a tremendous thing. You know, one of the oncologists came to me. He said, Ben, I've always been an atheist. I'm a believer now. But it was really for me, you see. It was for me because I thought I was pretty great. Coming out of Detroit, going to Yale, University of Michigan, training at Johns Hopkins, being the chief of pediatric neurosurgery at a world-renowned hospital at such a young age. I thought I was hot stuff. But, you know, after that case, I realized that it wasn't me. I realized who it actually was. And I said, Lord, I said, from now on, you be the neurosurgeon and I'll be the hands. That's what happened. You know? And that's when all the amazing things began to happen. All these once-in-a-lifetime cases, one after another, incredible things. And this is what happens when we are willing to step aside, remove our big ego from the thing, and allow God to take over. 
And you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what field of endeavor we're in. God can use us no matter where we are. But what it will require is courage. We must have the same kind of courage as the, as the patriots that founded this country, as the people in World War I and World War II and Vietnam and all of the places that have fought. In the Middle East, all of our people have had courage. And now the question is, how much courage do you have? Because it was Thomas Jefferson, who I believe was a genius, who said that the people of America would become lackadaisical. They would not pay attention. And as a result, the government would grow and insinuate itself into every aspect of our lives. And it would begin to control us. But just before we turned into something else. He said the people of America would awaken and regain control. And I think now is that time to awaken. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are blessed.